part four of a series that I started a few weeks ago on spiritual formation. We started talking a few weeks ago about things that we do in our life, the things that we are responsible for to grow in our relationship with God. We talk about certain practices or behaviors that we need to do to kind of like to do our part of our relationship with God. So during the series, we talk about things like prayer and forgiveness, about fasting and about study and devotions and community. We talk about these kind of topics. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the whole idea of silence and solitude, about carving out time in your schedule to spend time alone with God. You know, more than just that minute or two where you quick shoot up a prayer or maybe read a devotional, but the time you say, I'm going to really take some strategic time to be alone with God, to take some time to really meditate on His Word or to really seek Him in prayer and expect Him to respond and answer to you. And before that, we talked about surrender, how we live this life of consistently surrendering our life to Jesus Christ. So today as we go on the fourth Sunday of this series, I want to talk about dealing with your past. In other words, I want to talk about dealing with things from your past that might be influencing you today in a negative way. I think we would all agree that our past does influence us in maybe a really good way. There's a lot of things that happened in our past that they determine how we act and behave, and those are all wonderful things. But then there's some things that happened in our past that we find that they influence our behavior today in a little bit more of a negative way. So I want to begin to talk about some of those things today and for the next couple weeks. Now, to be very honest with you, I'm not that ex- I was not that excited to start this part of the series. I am now. But for the last three days, I kind of really wrestled with this topic. I'm like, wait a minute, it's summer. You know, half the people here are on vacation somewhere, and we're going to be talking about dealing with your past, looking back at the whole family tree and saying, what are the bad things from my past that influenced me today? It's like, it just doesn't seem like the right time to be doing it. It's kind of the middle of summer. Let's talk about something fun, but instead we're going to talk about dysfunctional family stuff. And as I prayed about this seriously for the last three days, and I really was seeking God, kind of like, did, did, did I hear you right? Do I need to do this part of the series now? I've, and, and I came away with three strong convictions. Three strong convictions that just kind of propelled me to say, yeah, stay on topic here and let's talk about your past. And the first conviction is because one of the reasons that we examine our past is because it shows us how desperately that we need Jesus. See, when we look at our past, there is one thing. We can't change a thing. We can't go back and redo our past. We don't get a do-over. We can't cancel the things out. We desperately need Jesus if there's going to be any redemption over anything in our past. And that's always a good thing when you recognize that you need Jesus in a desperate way. And the second thing that is good to look at your past is because it reminds us of how much Jesus has actually done in our life. Sometimes it's good to look back and say, how in the world did that kid in high school get to that place where you are today? Sometimes that's the most encouraging thing to look back and say, wow, look what God has really done in my life. And the third conviction that I have is sometimes God will say, I want you to go backwards to move you forward into the plan that I have for your life. See, the bottom line is this. I think when you deal with your your past and you look at your past, it is very honoring to God. It's honoring to God because you're saying to God, I don't just need you for my present and my future, but I need you just as much in my past. 
I need you to bring redemption to every single area of my life. And I need to give you the shalom and the peace in every area of my life. I'm not just trusting you with my present and my future, but I'm also trusting with, you, with my past. And so to deal with your past is a way to acknowledge to Jesus that I need you in every single dimension of my life. And that's honoring to God. That's our whole goal here of doing spiritual formation. That's our whole goal of discipleship is to put Jesus first in every single area of your life. And sometimes we need to go back and put Jesus first in even our past. And that's honoring to God. And so I think part of what we're doing right now is honoring to God in a way that maybe we didn't anticipate. So today I want to talk about generational sins. I want to talk about generational patterns and generational dysfunctions. I also want to talk about generational accountability. Now, I recognize that some of you might think, now, why in the world do we have to talk about things in the past? Let's just focus on the future. If you remember last week, we talked about Elijah and how Elijah had this most powerful encounter with God and then the powers of Baal, and he saw God totally on display to show to the Israelites that he was more powerful than Baal. And what happened immediately after that? The king Ahab's wife Jezebel said to, said to Elijah, I'm going to kill you for what you did. And Elijah got scared. He got a little panicked. He got a little threatened. And so he had a little bit of a crisis in his life. But God, being faithful and kind and loving, he ministered to Elijah at the exact time and the place Elijah needed to be ministered to. And in the midst of this encounter that he has with God, he hears God's small voice that encourages him. And then after God does this great work of restoration in Elijah's life, he tells him in 1 Kings 19, verse 15, he said, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. Like, go back the same way I came? That's all those people that I didn't like before. That's where I got in trouble. That's where all the situations happened before. But God says, I want you to go backwards. Because if you're going to go back to some of the places you've been before, and then from there you can move forward in the plans that I have for you. And when Elijah went back, he accomplished some of the best things that he did for God. So sometimes it's a simply looking backwards to find the momentum to move forward in the new plans that God has in your life. See, one of the principles of following Jesus is that we examine sinful patterns in our life to know how to see those things defeated. And a lot of what following Jesus is, it's a relearning process. It's learning how to live in the kingdom of God. I think all of us know that each one of us was born into a family. We were born into a family structure. We were born into a different culture. And we learned how to live and breathe and operate and think in this little family and culture that we were raised in. But then it's interesting that when you become a Christian, that one of the words that the Bible uses to describe what happens after you become a Christian is that it uses the word adoption, that you're adopted into a new family. And in this new family, you have a new father. You have new brothers and sisters. You have a new identity. You have a new inheritance. And so suddenly we're all living in this new family of God. We're living in this new kingdom of God. But so many of us, we're used to living in this old family, in this old culture. And we're so used to this that we don't know how to live in the blessings that God has over here. So God is always trying to get us to relearn, to re-understand how to live in this new kingdom that he has for us. So some of this process of looking back to look at family dysfunction is simply to help us to know how do we live in this kingdom of God that he wants us to live in. 
Because the thing that we know about God is that he wants to bless us way more than we understand. That God is way more concerned with our future and with our joy and our happiness than any of us are aware of. And we're always kind of struggling, which kingdom do we live in? How do we operate? And God's like, I want you to live completely in this kingdom of God that I have for you. So I need you to relearn some things in your life. And sometimes the things that we need to relearn is by looking back in our life and saying, where did I pick up some bad habits? Or where did I pick up some bad behaviors in my life? I need to examine those so I stop living with one foot in each kingdom. Two weeks ago, we talked about Joseph. Joseph, the man, the guy with the coat of many colors. And we all love Joseph. This is a great story of restoration. But Joseph comes from a family of incredible dysfunction. The very fact that his very own brothers plotted to kill him is just as much as I have to say to describe dysfunction. I know there's times I did not get along with my brothers and sisters, but I don't think they ever plotted to kill me. They ditched me a few times in Meyer, but they never plotted to kill me. And so Joseph grows up, not only, so his brothers, they, they got nice, and like you heard me say a couple weeks ago, and they're like, okay, we're not going we're not gonna, we're not gonna kill him. Let's sell him. We could make some money off our brother. So they sell their nice younger brother. He ends up being a slave in Egypt. And we know what we know good old Joseph. He's a hard worker. He gets promoted into the house of Potiphar. He gets a good job. He gets a good position. And the next thing you know, Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape. He didn't do it. The next thing you know, he ends up in jail. I mean, from all accounts, Joseph's life looks miserable. It looks terrible. It looks like a train wreck. You really don't expect much to come out of Joseph when you look what happened to him by other people. But yet, what happens in Genesis 50 after Joseph meets his brothers? Joseph meets his brothers, and a lot of you know that verse in Genesis 50, verse 20, and Joseph looks at his brothers and says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. That's a powerful testimony. You would have totally expect Joseph to look at his brothers and said, you guys are a bunch of jerks. You're a bunch of idiots. Do you know what you cost me? Do you have any idea what it was like to be in that pit? Do you have any idea what it was like to be sold into slavery? Do you have any idea of what I went through? Do you have any idea what it was like to be accused of something I didn't do and then end up in prison? Do you have any idea what that was like? You probably don't, so now I'm going to pay you back because I have this position of authority and I'm going to harm you. But Joseph doesn't do that. He does the exact opposite. He basically says to his brothers, thank you. Because everything that you did to me, God redeemed it. And I'm better off for it. That's remarkable. That Joseph could look back on his life and say, what they did to me turned out to be a huge blessing in my life. Because I'm now in the position to help many people. That is incredible. that everything that he's been through, he can say, but look at what God has done in my life because of it. And that's why we have to look back sometime to say, God, would you redeem that? 
Would you redeem what the enemy meant for destruction in my life? And would you use it so I can help other people? That's the beautiful thing about the story of Joseph. We see how God can take the most difficult of situations and turn it into a testimony that's going to help other people. I think every one of us has a little bit of a story of Joseph in us. We have a little bit of a story we feel betrayed. Or we feel like somebody harmed us or hurt us. Or we feel like we got accused of something that we didn't do. Or we feel like we had to pay the consequences for somebody else's mistakes. And we see with Joseph, what does God say? I'll redeem that. I'll redeem it so you look at it. And you say, that was worth it. Because I get to help other people. And that's so much of what we do in spiritual formation as we say, God, would you redeem every part of my story, every part of my life, so I can be a blessing to other people? And we know if anybody had a reason to be bitter, it would have been Joseph. If he'd have been bitter the rest of his life, he'd have said, yeah, I can see why. You did get the short end of the stick. But Joseph learned to forgive other people. He learned to see God's good in any situation in your life. See, Joseph, he came from a very dysfunctional family. Not only did his brothers want to kill him, but his uncles and his grandfathers, they had a little bit of a problem of lying. Some of you know that Joseph, his great-grandfather was Abraham, a guy that God called to, to be a blessing to the entire world. But Abraham doesn't come on stage, this perfect squeaky clean guy, all ready to serve God with no blemishes. Abraham comes on the scene and he has a few of his own issues to deal with. And one of Abraham's problems is that he likes to lie. Not just little lies, big lies. You see in Genesis 12 that Abraham is with his wife Sarah and they're before, Pot, or they're before Pharaoh and, and Abraham says to his wife, he says, let's lie to him and tell him you're my sister. Don't tell him you're my wife. That's a whole story in itself. But that turns into a huge disaster. He actually puts his wife at huge risk. And that turns into disaster. God gets him out of it. But what happens about a few chapters later? He tells his wife to lie again to another man and say that you're my sister. Well, that doesn't end there. And then you see his own son, Isaac, is married to Rebecca. And Isaac tells other people that Rebecca is his sister. Again, you see this perpetual lying in the generations. And so then you get to Isaac, Isaac's son, Jacob. What does he do? He deceives his dad into thinking that he's the brother Esau so he can steal the family birthright. These family, they like to lie. Big lies, not just little lies, big ones. And then so what happens to Jacob? His own kids lie to him and say that the son Joseph was murdered by a lion. So you see this dysfunctional pattern that Joseph grew up and you see this generation of people that lie. That doesn't seem like it really bothers them. It just continues. And I think some of us, we know families like that. We know families that you look at and you're like, yeah, why is everybody in that family kind of rude? Or why does it seem to be there's a lot of people in that family and they, they seem kind of arrogant? But then you also look at families with really good traits and you say, do you notice in that family everybody's a really good athlete? 
Or everybody in that family, they're, they're kind of really smart or they're really successful. We see these generational blessings and these generational attributes that are really good in families. And then we also see these huge deficits in families. And sometimes we sit back and say, now, how does that all happen? Well, I can't explain all the ways, but I think if you look at the Ten Commandments, you're going to get a really good idea of what is happening in some of these family trees. See, in Exodus 34, verse 6, in the first part of 7, we get one of these good verses that we all like. This is one of those verses that you're like, yeah, let, let's put that on a t-shirt. And in this verse, it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. We love those kind of verses about God, of God's faithfulness and kindness and gentleness. These are the kind of verses that, we, that we're like, yeah, that's, that's great. That gives us a lot of comfort. And then we read the second part of verse 7, and it says, God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generations. And you read that verse and you're like, I don't think I like that anymore. I don't know if I like the same God. I like part of this God, but I don't know if I like the second part. I don't even exactly know what that verse means, but I just know I don't like it. See, when we read that verse, we're, we're kind of wondering, is God saying that he's going to punish me for the sins that my, my parents did? Does that mean I'm going to be held accountable to everything my parents or my grandparents did? Because it kind of reads like that. And if that's true, that doesn't seem very kind. It seems pretty harsh. Well, in fact, it is kind of harsh because God's not doing that. God's not saying in this verse that he is going to punish you for the things that your ancestors did. See, I like how Tim Mackey from the Gospel Project calls it. He says, this is a verse, this is a chapter on generational accountability. I like that term. I've never heard that before. Generational accountability. See, God is not saying that he's going to bring his judgment on completely innocent people for their parents' actions. He's not saying that the kids are going to have to pay the penalty for the parents' sin at all. Now, you might have to live with consequences. You might have to live in a house with somebody that's being disobedient to God and know what that's like living in that. But he's saying you're not going to be responsible for the sin. Instead, this verse is a warning from God that each generation is going to be held accountable if they repeat the sins of the previous generation. See, that's what God's saying here. He's saying, be careful that you don't repeat the sins that other people did in your family, because if you do, you're going to be held responsible for that. So that's a very kind thing that God is doing here. He's drawing that out. Because sometimes there's weaknesses in family trees. There's weaknesses in family patterns that people start doing the same thing that grandma did or the uncle did. And everybody thinks, well, that's just what we do. Well, we all kind of do that in our family. Well, it's also called sinning. See, sometimes we think, well, it's okay because everybody else does it and God's drawing attention to it saying, hey, there's something that called, we're going to call generational accountability. You're going to be accountable for things if you do them, even if you're not even really aware of what you're doing. 
So to understand this verse, it's important to look at the context of this verse. Look at kind of the verses that are going on around this. See, in chapter 34 of Exodus, it's all about God giving the Israelites the Ten Commandments. So in Exodus 34, God calls Moses to go to Mount Sinai to spend 40 days and 40 nights with him so God can give him these wonderful Ten Commandments. And as you know, in the Ten Commandments, God's going to give this covenant. He's going to tell Israelites what I'm going to do for you, and then in return, he's going to tell the Israelites what I expect from you. He's going to expect a little obedience. And so we see that how beautiful verse of God say, I'm going to be gentle and kind and loving and compassionate for you. But see, unfortunately, in Exodus 34, this wasn't the first time that Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. You might remember a few chapters earlier, Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, but he gets called down from the mountain because the Israelites are misbehaving so poorly that he has to come down and correct them. See, the first time he went to the mountain, he was gone a little bit too long, and the Israelites started to get a little impatient. And when they got impatient, they got a little fearful. And they said, we're going to take matters into our own hands. That's good to remember. What got the Israelites into trouble was being impatient and then suddenly getting fearful. Those things are known to happen to other people as well, like myself. You get a little impatient, you get a little scared, and you say, I'll come up with my own plan. The Israelites did the exact same thing. They came up with their own plan. What was their own plan in Exodus 34, or 32, 1-4 tells us? They said to Aaron, Moses' brother, said, you know what, Moses has gone too long. We need to make a new God. So let's burn, let's melt down all of our jewelry. Let's melt down all of our gold. Let's bring everything together and let's create our own new God. They replaced God with this new image that they made, which is basically an image of what themselves, of what they really wanted. You look at that and says, who does that kind of stuff? Don't you remember that God saved you from the Egyptians? He got you through the Red Sea. He provided food for you, provided manna for you. Now, why would you abandon God just because you got a little impatient? I think we all recognize there's times we make our own little escape plan in our own life when it gets a little long and we have to wait a little bit too long. And it's just a reminder to us that sometimes waiting can be difficult. But waiting's often the place where you find kind of what God planned to do for the Israelites. He had this huge plan from this huge covenant plan, and, and, and the good thing is it just took a little too long to wait. But sometimes in waiting, that's where the biggest blessing is going to come. But see, what we see in the scripture as well is that, you know, I think if a lot of us, if I was God and I came down and I saw what the Israelites were doing, I would have said, forget these people. Forget these Israelites. I'll find a new group of people. But see, that's when we remember that verse in Hebrews that I quoted about Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, is that God is consistent in his love to the Israelites and says, I'm going to rescue them once again. I'm not going to replace them. I'm going to rescue them. And that is God's always his heart. But God wants the Israelites to understand that he's serious about generational sin that he's serious about generational accountability. See, God's warning the Israelites. He's saying, you know what? There is a pattern that the generations do. He's warning them that so often one generation just repeats what the generation did before them. 
See, God's telling the Israelites that the propensity or the vulnerability to sin is passed down in the generations just like the blessings of God are passed down. And sometimes we don't even know when it's happening. And he's warning the Israelites. He's telling them, I'm going to be slow to anger. I'm going to be with you in this process. But I want you to be aware that you don't fall in the trap of just committing sins that people have done before. See, God knows full well that all of us are vulnerable. He knows that all of us are vulnerable to sin, that we're vulnerable to temptation, that we're vulnerable to repeating the sins that have happened in our family. And God's heart is always about restoration. His heart is not about punishing people. That's not his go-to. His heart is to set people free and to break patterns into family lines, to seeing families learn how to live in the kingdom of God and get out of living in a dysfunctional family structure. I think this text wants us to remember I think this text wants us to remember that we can't live in denial and think that's our strategy to getting set free. I think sometimes we like to look at our family structure and we look back and we just said, well, I'm just going to ignore that and pretend that doesn't happen or say that's not going to affect me or happen in my own life. That's sometimes how we handle things. That's why I think it's good to look at Matthew 15 and 9 verse uh, 19 through 20, where Jesus says something to the Pharisees and the scribes. He says something in Matthew 9, 15 that nobody saw coming, and it's going to offend a lot of people when he says it, and it's going to offend a lot of people even when they read it in 2021. And what does Jesus say that's so offensive? He says, from the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. So why is this so significant? See, Jesus is saying that sin, it's already in your own heart. It's inside of you. He's saying the problems are inside of you. Don't just go blaming other people. Looking at your past is not an excuse to blame grandma or grandpa for things that happened in the family. He's saying, look, you have to examine your very own heart. And see, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and these are incredibly religious people. The Pharisees are such religious people, they don't even need Jesus. They got it all figured out. And see, in the Pharisees' mind, the way that you avoid sin is you avoid certain people, certain places, and certain things. See, the Pharisees looked at sin more like it was a contagion, more like it was an infection, something that could be caught. So if you stayed away from these people, you stayed away from those places, you stayed away from those sins, your life would stay pretty pure. Okay, there, there's some wisdom in that. We all know certain places you don't go. But what Jesus is saying to them, that's not good enough. It's not just good enough to ignore certain places or think you have to examine the sin that's already in your very own heart. And they didn't like that message at all. That was difficult for them to hear that the sin could already be in their very own heart. That wasn't part of their formula. It's easier to look at other people and judge them and say, look what they do wrong, I stay away from them. But suddenly Jesus is saying, you're not that innocent. That's already in your heart.
see, sin sometimes isn't just something that needs to be avoided. But as Sam Aubrey says, sometimes sin's in your heart and it needs to be confessed and renounced more than just avoided. And that's what Jesus was saying that day. He said, I want you to examine your very own heart. Stop just looking at other people what they do wrong. That's a tough word to hear. That's sometimes difficult to hear. That's difficult to hear in 2021. Because in our current culture, we like to say, you just, do, you just follow your own heart. You ever do whatever's inside of you. You do what, well, you, you do, you do what feels right for you. Follow your own heart. And Jesus is saying, no. Your heart can be deceptive. Your heart can lead you astray. You see, Jesus is saying, look, remember, I'm the God of the past and the present and the future. I know what's going to happen if you follow your own heart. In the future, that's not going to look that good. And that's Jesus' warning. That's God's warning to each of us. Be careful that your heart doesn't lead you into a destructive pattern. But let's live in this new adoptive family where Jesus is the king and we follow the king. That's God's heart of saying, I want you to examine your past. Look for any dysfunctions in your family. Look for any propensities or any vulnerabilities to sin that maybe you picked up and you're doing these things and you don't even know that you're doing it. That's Jesus' warning to us because he wants us to live in freedom into the kingdom of God. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that says, look and be aware. Because we know how this sin stuff works. Suddenly you're like, wait a minute, what am I doing? Sometimes things just happen in your life that you didn't even expect to happen and they're happening. And the grace of God saying, let's stop those patterns. And not only does our family have a big influence on us, but also our culture influences us in greater ways than I think any of us really understand. The other day I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, his name's Aaron, and he has three boys, maybe seven, five, and three or four, and they're young little kids. And his wife said to Aaron the other day out of the blue, she said, what do you think has the biggest influence over our three boys? Do you think it's the American consumer culture? or the Christian culture that we're trying to raise our kids in. He's like, I had to think for a minute. What influences me more? Consumerism or values in the kingdom of God? See, it's kind of like sometimes those things influence that we never saw coming. And Jesus is saying, you got to examine what's around you. Examine what's coming into you. You have to examine your heart because we want to live in the freedom of the kingdom of God. So what do you do? How do you do this? I mean, maybe you're looking at your family going, yeah, there is a lot of crazy stuff that goes on. Maybe you're looking, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of anger in my family. There's a lot of resentment. There's even some racism in my family. What do you do? I gave you a list of things that I think are important to do. I think it's helpful to do. I think the first place is you start out and say, God, would you show me any patterns? Would you show me any dysfunction in my family? Would you show those things to me? 
Maybe God will do that over a week or two or three or the rest of your life. He'll just reveal to you things that maybe you haven't seen. Maybe you write down some things, that things that you observed in your family. And then it's very important, the step number two, is then you've got to reject those things. You have to reject those things. Spend time with God and say, God, I don't want that to be part of my story. I don't want that anger and bitterness and resentment to be part of my story. I reject that. And then often you need to repent for some people in your family that maybe you hold bitterness or judgment against that do those kind of things. A lot of us have that one family member that you're like, yeah, I avoid that person. Maybe you need to ask God to forgive you from feelings that you have or resentment against that person. Then I think step four is very, very important that we need to actually repent and ask God to forgive us for participating in some of our dysfunction in our family, for the sins that we have committed. I think sometimes we do those things and we say, well, I just a little bit, I do it. I don't do it that much, or I don't do it as much as that person. But even that little bit is something that God's saying, I want you to surrender to me and submit to me then it's important to ask God to break those cycles in our family so they, they stop. So they don't just continue with me or pass down to our family, but that they stop. And then ask God to give you the grace and the power and the ability to resist participating in those sins. It's one thing to ask God to forgive you, but sometimes you need to have the ability to stand up against doing those patterns that you've learned. And we need to be aware. We have a sneaky enemy that's always trying to bring up things, always trying to get us to do things that we don't want to do. It's continually submitting to God so we can have the strength and the power to resist temptation and to remind ourselves that freedom is the ability to say no. Freedom is the ability to resist that temptation. To be tempted doesn't mean you're not free. But to be able to resist it and say, no, that's the freedom, that's the power that God gives to us. So I want to close this message and we're going to listen to another song as we can sit and again participate how you want to, but to begin to ask God to set us free from anything in the past that might be influencing us today. Maybe you feel really good about the service. Maybe you're like, yeah, I don't think there's much there. But he used to look back and to say, thank you, God, to where you brought me today. But also to remember that not only do some of these sin patterns of dysfunction flow in your family, but also you see great blessings flow in families. To thank God for those blessings that you have. For, so just the incredible things that have happened in your family tree that are good. You know, it's, it's interesting when I look at my family tree, how many nurses are in my family? We have nurses and we have teachers and we have accountants in one side of my family. I mean, there's just, just, just some blessings that flow in family trees. See, so both sides of my family, it's like, they're all like really hard workers. They're like just all like good work ethics. And, you know, I look at my family tree and I'd say majority of people follow Christ and are involved. You know, there's just a lot of good in families that are so important to look at as well. That we don't just get caught up and say, oh, that's negative stuff. But like, look at the amazing family structure that I came from as well. That's so important to remember. So let's pray and close with a song.
Father, we just come before you at the end of the service to thank you that you are the God of freedom and the restoration and that you are the God of our past and our present and our future. And God, I pray that you'd bless each person that's listened to this message to know what they're supposed to do right now. And God, I thank you that you are the good shepherd, that your Holy Spirit is inside of us to lead us and to direct us. So I pray for that. I pray that each person here would know what to do with this message. Would you minister to us, God, as we close in this final song? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.